Welcome to Florida. <laughs> We've got fanfare to start this episode as it is our anniversary episode or as close as we are going to make it. Welcome to Florida. One year old today. New York Times bestselling author and award-winning environmental reporter, Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott and uh, happy anniversary, Craig. Happy anniversary to you too. I hope you enjoyed that two kazoo salute. We were going for 21, but we just couldn't quite pull it off. <laughs> well, maybe for anniversary number two, we'll get the 21 kazoo salute. If, if folks want to hear about how Welcome to Florida came to be, go all the way back to the preview episode and, and we share that story with you. But we've had now something over 50 episodes. And I think this is 53. What one stand out to you, Craig? One of the big ones was the one we did on the highwaymen, uh, where okay. uh, you had, you got recruited a wonderful guest, and he told us all about. He gave us sort of the inside look at how that yeah. art movement grew up in Florida and and what its legacy is, and that was just that was fascinating. I learned so much from that. Yeah, that was Kelvin Hare, who's Alfred Hare's son. Alfred Hare, one of the original highwaymen. I, to me, my list of five favorite episodes is now about twelve long, and it, <laughs> you know it started. Math with, is not uh, your strong suit. No, <laughs> it's, it never has been. Uh, it started with episode number two, and that was our American Beach episode with Marsha oh, yeah. Dean Feltz, who I meant to tell you, Craig, I met recently oh, that's at, great. Uh, at American Beach fundraising event, and, and she <laughs> was a, a delightful woman. So the, the American Beach episode... I. I still remember the Villages episode, Craig, and listening to that. And I could literally, I mean, there was like this palpable feeling of both of our jaws agape the entire Mm -hmm. time at what we were hearing. I, I, to this day, remember the feeling of listening to that episode in complete astonishment from start to finish. Oh, yeah. And then the one, uh, another early one with uh, Donna Khalil, the python hunter. Yes, uh, cooks her cooks her pythons mm-hmm. after she catches them, which yeah. is and it has has a number of favorite recipes. For, yeah. That for, that uh, might have been the the longest interview we had because it, it was so interesting and you know that's a, a it's something I've wanted to do. You wrote about her for Flamingo Magazine and the female python hunters of the Everglades, and it was one of those episodes. What I remember is you know, I knew that the devastation ecologically was bad when she said 99% of raccoons, opossums and uh, had been killed by, I I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't, but it's, I mean, they're very hungry snakes. So it's it's good. It's good that somebody else is eating them. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The um, Panther episode, which ties into that was another fabulous one that related to your book, uh, Cattail, America's most racist sheriff, was oh, yeah. an episode I was fascinated by. I was yeah. excited to learn more about Zora Neale Hurston or learn anything really at all mm-hmm. in our episode uh, about her. If I have a top five somewhere in it, and, and perhaps number one is the 1980 Miami cocaine policing mm-hmm. episode. I, what I remember about that episode is having to stop myself from asking questions. It's like, we are taking advantage of this guy's time at this point. Because <laughs> we were just one after the other, after the other, after the other. And I wrote a whole book about that year that was so true. One year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in, in Miami. And that is one where I could have gone on 
for two hours, just how did this, well, then what happened? I mean, I, I thought that still to me stands out as one of the most fascinating. Well, and remember he said that he originally it was going to be a book about five years in Miami. He had so much material from that one year. <laughs> he just had to stop. He had to, he had to limit himself. Yeah. So the <laughs> archives are there for you. All of the, how, how dare we forget Everglades and big sugar. Yes. You know, there have been so Carl Hyacin who joined us there. That was, that's, a, that's one of my favorites as well. Cause Carl really kind of, opened up to us i think and, and i think that was you know he was funny but also he had, had some very heartfelt things to yeah, say as yeah. well. it's been a great first year we look forward to many more and what a way to start year number two with betty osceola osceola i should uh, correct my pronunciation there betty osceola mikasuki tribal elder environmental activist she runs the buffalo tiger airboat tours down in the Everglades. And we've on the periphery touched on some Seminole Native American in Florida topics, uh, one uh, recently with Florida's uh, historic inhabitants. But I- I'm excited to, to dive in fully uh, and learn more about this story. Absolutely. Let's do it. Betty Osceola, what a, what a great pleasure it is to talk to you. Tell people a little bit about the Miccosukee tribe. You guys li- actually live in Everglades National Park, do you not? Uh, we live um, at the edge of Everglades National uh, Park. Our reservation lands actually um, borders it on the Tamiami Trail. And, you know, the Miccosukee tribe, which was uh, established with their constitution in 1962, has always lived throughout here um, in Florida in the last places of existence to, to survive when they moved during the Seminole Wars to from the Calvary and we finally came to that truce, ended up here, right in the middle of the, the Florida Everglades, you know, in even inhabited portions of what is now called Everglades National Park. But, you know, we're still here, still uh, fighting to survive, to exist. Tell us a little bit about what it was like for you growing up there. You know, I actually grew up um, in what is now known as the um, Big Cypress National Preserve, which is part mm-hmm. of the greater Everglades system. You know, when I was, um, you know, a child growing up, it was a much quieter time. And, you know, I'm one of the last of the generations to actually have some form of subsistence living where you could actually still live off the land. So growing up, whatever we ate is what we could find, whether it was deer, whether it was um, catching fish, spearfishing, harvesting um, the fruits off the land. You know, my mother uh, grew some pumpkin and squash. You know, I had a grandmother that helped in our culture, you know, our grandparents helped raise the children. So I had a grandmother that lived with us that didn't eat anything from the store. So everything that we were going to eat had to come off the land. And growing up, you know, the water was much clearer in the canals. You know, we we swam. We weren't afraid uh, for alligators because you could see to the bottom. (laughs) Birds were plentiful. I remember in in the mornings when you get up, especially during the winter time. You just had flocks of birds. It seemed like thousands of birds would just fly across the sky and it was thunderous. You'd hear that swoosh, yeah. swoosh, swoosh. And it was like a dark thundercloud rolling in. And the same thing would happen in the evenings when they would go back to roost. You could hear the birds before you saw them. You saw more, more, more animals, rabbits, mm-hmm. raccoons, possums, armadillo. You know, wildlife was very abundant, but as I got older, the birds were getting less. And then even in, you know, as a, as a young parent in my twenties, you didn't see much of the raccoons or the possums anymore, or even, you know, where I live, I actually live in the, the, the Indian village that I grew up in. I actually live in a cheeky hut. I'm one of the 
few families that still choose to live as our ancestors did. You know, my roof is a thatched roof. I still cook over an open fire. So the area where we're at, you know, the water isn't as clear anymore. You don't see all the bird life that you used to see. It's rare that, you know, we growing up, we had a, a panther that always crossed through our yard. A certain time of year, we were always wow. more vigilant. And this female panther used to cross through the, uh, our yard. I don't get that anymore. You have bears coming up into the yard. Once in a while, we'll still get a, a bear. You had rabbits, raccoons. I don't know when's the last time I've seen a raccoon out here in the Big Cypress or even an armandillo. It's been years. I think the last time I saw a panther here in the Big Cypress, my my children, because my, my son is uh, 33. So he must have been about nine years old. And what became, what was a common occurrence is now a rare occurrence. And even the, the environment itself, where we could grow crops in you know, planting them in the tree islands, they they thrived. Now you try to plant a crop and they shrivel up and die. So the soil has changed. So it's very different today than what it was when I was growing up. You mentioned a term, chicky hut. For people who don't know what chicky huts are, explain, please. Yeah, uh, a chicky hut, in my language, chicky means home. So it's a thatched structure made out of cypress. Uh, we use cypress wood for the, the frame of the cheeky. And for the roofing, we collect palmetto leaves from the um, cabbage palm tree. And we layer those leaves on the roof. And back in the earlier days, they used vines to tie the leaves to the, they uh, used vines to tie everything together. But today, of course, we use, you know, you got Home Depot and Lowe's. So they buy, we use nails to tack on the, the leaves to the structure. And that's our traditional form of housing here in um, the southern part of Florida because it's a breathing roof. It's a breathable roof. You don't need to have any walls. A protection against the mosquitoes is, you know, we just use smoke and different plants to as a natural way to uh, protect mm-hmm. ourselves. When we live more in the northern part of the state, the structures were different. They were almost um, because of the materials that you had around you. And you have more hardwood trees up in northern Florida. Also, the environment gets much cooler. So they built their structures almost like log cabins or hogans. But here in the southern part of the state where it gets very warm and the materials you had were cypress trees and you had cabbage palm trees, you made a different type of structure. Your last name, Osceola, is very famous, (laughs) very legendary. (laughs) Tell people about the heritage of your family, the Osceola name? You know, the Osceola, I get that from my, my late husband's uh, side of the family. But, you know, in the, in the history of the Seminole and Miccosukee people, Osceola was a, is, was a, a famous warrior. We don't have the word chief in our language. And I know people say chief Osceola, but he wasn't a chief. He was a high-ranking um, warrior in the history of our people and helping, you know, resist removal from Florida to out Oklahoma and very uh, tenacious person. And we're very proud to have people like him. And also my uh, bloodline runs through Sam Jones. That's in my family history. So through those warriors that were willing to stand up and stand their ground to to keep our people here, I'm very thankful because otherwise, you know, we wouldn't be here in, in Florida. There's a lot of stories about Osceola and what he did. And I think it took a lot of courage for, for those individuals. We always say, you know, our ancestors fought for us. They died for us to be here. So we have to continue that fight. But today's fight is very different. It's a paper war, right? With huh. attorneys. 
<laughs> suing over land and water, trying to, pr- to protect the environment because we have to have an environment in order to exist. You might want to explain to people who Sam Jones is. I know it's a famous name, but well, Sam Jones was a was a an older gentleman. Um, I know in the history books, you know, they describe him as a, a medicine man. A very um, when it came to uh, military strategy, he had the mindset to strategize and. and I don't want to say predict, but anticipate what what the enemy was was going to do. And and when they write about him, I understand they called him the devil because mm, of wow. of how tenacious he was in their strategies. And and I think you know it, because he's a direct because I'm a direct descendant, we're very proud of that history that he had in helping uh, keeping us here. And I know the Seminole Tribe of Florida worked for many years to get um, one of the areas on their Big Cypress Reservation, I believe it is, that's just south of Cluiston. There's an area where he occupied, where he had his Indian village, and they got a portion of the a roadway in the Hendry County named after Sam Jones. If you pass down the road, they call it Devil Gar- Devil's Garden Drive. Mm. Is that stretch of road that goes into the Big Cypress Indian Reservation? When did the Miccosukee and Seminoles part company and become separate, and why was that done? In the uh, 1950s, about the late 1950s, the, when the Seminole tribe was seeking um, federal, they were all seeking federal recognition together mm-hmm. because the the people, the elders, came to the realization in order to continue to exist because their way of life was being was changing because they could no longer freely live and travel the state of Florida in that nomadic lifestyle. And whenever they were hunting, you know, game wardens were taking the meat from them. Uh, when they'd go to put up a temporary camp, they were being made to move. They realized that they needed to have some kind of more protections. And that's when they started seeking federal recognition. When the Seminole tribes was making their agreement, the elders at the time some of the concessions that they were willing to make and giving up rights, there were elders that didn't thought too many rights were being given up in order to get that federal recognition. So that they had told, you know, the other group that if they want to see, pursue that federal recognition and become a public two law 80 tribe and have a lot of restrictions, that's fine. But don't include them. You had a group that they called the, the independent Seminoles or the traditional Seminoles couple of my grandfathers, uh, Ingram and Josie Billy, they were brothers, were a part of the elders and also Corey Osceola and the late William Buffalo Tiger and some others, because they were mainly here in the Everglades, they wanted to protect their rights more. So they chose to break to break off from the group that is now called the Seminole Tribe of Florida. And with the help of Morton Silver and some other key individuals, to seek federal recognitions apart from the Seminole tribe. So that started in the late 1950s. And they worked very hard. And at that time, the federal government was under the mindset, you know, we gave you federal recognition. So every, regardless of what tribe you're a part of, every Indian person in Florida is a Seminole, mm-hmm. was the mindset at the time. So they worked very hard to prove that they spoke a different dialect, that they were a different people. And it wasn't until you have to remember that what late 1950s and early 1960s, you had the Cuban Missile Crisis and the fear of communism was very out there in public. So they came up with this strategy to go to Cuba. So Buffalo Tiger and a handful of elders, along with their attorney at the time, and I believe, uh, was it Janet Reno's brother? 
was one of the individuals that went with them. They went to got on an airplane. They went to Cuba and spent two weeks in Cuba with Castro and his brother. And there's the tribe has photographs of that. And when the federal government learned that these, you know, these bunch of Indians were in Cuba with Castro, they took notice. And also Spain, you have to remember the Miccosukee tribe had a strong relationship with Spain when the United States acquired Florida from Spain. There were some agreements that Spain had insisted upon that the United States honor to the indigenous tribes here. So even Spain interceded on the half, behalf of the Miccosukees by reaching out to Washington, D.C. So while the Miccosukee, the handful of Miccosukees were in Cuba, Cuba actually did give international recognition to the Miccosukee tribe before the United States government. So once the Miccosukees came back to the United States, the United States was willing to recognize them as a federally recognized tribe. So they kind of played a hard hand of poker there. No kidding. Wow. <laughs> Going to meet with, with Castro. Speaking of gambling, now the Miccosukee tribe does have a, a gambling casino. Yeah, they have the resort and gaming and they're they're a class two. I know a similar tribe has their operations in Florida with um, class three gaming. Class two is like bingo and things like that, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Does that help in financing some of the... Uh, some of the lawsuits that you mentioned? Not just the, the lawsuits, but the majority of the expenses that the tribe has is all finance from the, the revenue that they make through the gaming. And also some of the, we have lands that we lease out for cattle ranching and for for the cell phone towers and other enterprises. So all of that, the majority of the funding that the tribe gets is from their own enterprises that they're bringing in. Because, you know, with the, you know, just like with the federal government, there's, a limited amount of money to go to different programs. So we, we can't rely, you know, on the government. And when William Buffalo Tiger was our chairman, I think he was um, ahead of his time and his thinking and being the tribe being self-sufficient. And that's when they had that, um, I think it was called what, uh, Self-Determination Act. And the Miccosukee tribe was the very, one of the very first tribes to go with that program to handle all their government operations instead of being tied uh, to the BIA to make those decisions for you. Yeah. You, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, of course, is notorious for not taking good care of the, no. the tribes under their, <laughs> That's under correct. their jurisdiction. That's correct. So, so yeah, it would make a lot more sense for the tribe to say, no, we want to run our own affairs. We want to handle our own, our own yes. funding. <laughs> yes. And that's one of the reasons that along with the Seminole tribe, and I believe in what is it, the, the Choctaw, where they established USET was the United uh, South and Eastern Tribes. There's four tribes that got together to have more strength in numbers in working and dealing with the, the federal government. And that entity still exists today. And there's a whole, uh, there's a lot more tribes that have become members, but uh, you had the original four founding tribes. Have you been able to, to recruit them to help out with some of your environmental campaigns? Well, there's, uh, they will issue resolutions and um, they have done that. And, uh, but a lot of times, you know, with the, with the tribes, especially um, when you have multiple tribes, everyone might agree on an issue, but the avenue in which they decide to address it is different. So a lot of times the, the Miccosukee have been on their own in their lawsuits. You know, there's the different lawsuits that resulted in the settlement agreements right here in Florida over water when the tribes sued the state and the federal government. And I believe what Friends of the Everglades, you know, came in on that lawsuit. So that we're kind of I want to say partners as a party to getting the, those agreements that are still valid today 
in Florida, which Florida continues to try to get undone. In a lot of my writing about art and culture, I am fortunate enough to cover Native American topics, talk to a lot of Native American artists. Every single conversation at some point gets to a reminder that this is a living culture. These are contemporary people. The myth of the vanishing race is just that, a myth and a dastardly one at that. How many members does the Miccosukee tribe have today? We have around 600, but we do have uh, descendants who choose not to enroll, which they, they're called independents, but actual enrolled members, like I'm an enrolled member. Mm-hmm. We have about 600. And, you know, the Similo tribe, I believe, what, they're over 3,000. But it is a living culture because who we are as a people, we live and breathe it every day. It's not something that we do on Sunday or yeah. a specific holiday. It's every day of our life. And it's hard to explain to people how we're, our culture is so tied to the land, the environment around yeah. us and our ceremonies. And that's why we're so protective of the environment, because to in order for us to exist and be who we are, we have to have that place to exist. We have to have that place to have our ceremonies. We have to have those places to grow our crops. And that's how we pass on our because we have an oral history in our teachings. Everything is hands on. Even though the tribe does have a school, which is bilingual, bicultural, every day of our life is tied to the environment. And also people can't understand when we say, you know, the tree is our relative, the water is our relative, but we still lay our our loved ones to rest out in the environment. I have aunts and uncles that are out in some of these cypress hammocks. And over time, when that body returns to the earth, you know, a tree might grow there. Water might flow over that area. So our DNA is actually in the environment. That's why we say we're related to the environment, because a tree may be standing there, but my grandmother's DNA might be in that tree. Talk a little bit about the the tree islands. I'm not sure people understand what those are and, and how important those are. Yeah, you know, in the greater Everglades system, you have what are called tree islands or hammocks. And tree islands over time are formed as, you know, as water flows, water carries that sediment, right? You can have a piece of muck pop up and float over the water. And then over time, you're going to have vegetation growing over it and it's going to get more solid. And as the water keeps flowing, it's going to keep gathering that sediment. And as it gets more plant life, that plant, the roots of those plants are going to help keep that sediment there. But it takes what? How many hundreds of thousands of years for a tree island to form? And those tree islands in the Everglades are homes. You have the rookeries of the different birds. You have the alligators that go and make their nests near some of these tree islands. You have the deer of the Everglades that go up into the tree islands looking for food or a place to, to bed down. You even get the wild hogs here in the Everglades in the drier parts of the year that go up into the islands looking for food. You have the marsh rabbits, you have mice, and even the snakes. They all use the islands as a home. I believe now, what, what is the percentage now of tree island loss? I think that uh, I heard 70%. We went from it's- 60% for the longest time This year, I heard now we're at 70% tree island loss. And I I do understand they're trying to recreate tree islands, artificial ones, but they haven't been as successful. So if you lose your tree islands of the Everglades, your your wildlife are not going to have a home 
which also ties into water levels. When you have consistent high levels of water, you displace the animals, you force them out of their homes because the tree tree islands will be submerged underwater. And from what I understand from the scientists that I, I speak to, they all agree that the consensus is more than 60 days of, even 30 days, more than 60 days of inundation of water, the tree island starts being impacted. The root system of the trees start to deteriorate. So when that happens, you start getting land loss on the island. And if that keeps that cycle keeps continuing, you that's how the island dies. And even these past couple of years, we've seen some of these tree islands with the with the willow and the bay leaf trees. And some of the islands have hardwood trees like oak. We're seeing those start to die. And then you have oak hammocks, especially um, in uh, the big cypress portion of the greater Everglades. We've seen oak hammocks all dead because of too much water inundation. So there's that delicate balance that needs to occur in the environment because a man's manipulation doesn't get to occur. You talk about the importance of the land and an exciting movement that I have become aware of recently as it relates to Native Americans and land and broken federal treaties is the land back movement, which is an attempt by Native American tribes to uh, reclaim ownership of land rightly provided to them through federal treaties that have been habitually broken by the United States government. Where do the uh, Miccosukee fall into under the, the land back movement? Is that something you're connected to and trying to take ownership of any more land in South well, Florida? Well, here in South Florida, the the main issue we, we have going on is not the land back movement, but is that recent decision where uh, EPA turned over the assumption of the 404 permitting process to the state of Florida. Because I mentioned the settlement agreement earlier in the lawsuits. When the tribes sued over water quality, and as a result, and making those settlement agreements, there's a portion of the Water Conservation Area 3A that was established as lease lands to the Miccosukee people that they're supposed to be treated as if they were a federal Indian reservation. And also with the establishment of the Big Cypress National Preserve in that enabling legislation that was codified when Congress passed that legislation as establishing the Big Cypress National Preserve in that the verbiage of that legislation, there were rights that were protected to the Miccosukee and Seminole people for those areas uh, as their traditional territory and were to have traditional access and use. But when EPA turned over the 404 permitting process to the state, the federal, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, those clearly defined areas that were Indian territory are now trying to say they're no longer Indian territory, that that only the, the federal reservations are. So that was hundreds of thousands of acres that they're trying to take away from the tribes there. So I call it a land grab under the guise of the 404. So they're trying, so that's the battle we're in right now is that clearly in legislation and as a result of a lawsuit, those established territories, just with the stroke of a pen through EPA, Hmm. they're trying to undo it. And this was the one Craig and and Betty Wright that was done last year that gave already the Trump. Yeah, yeah federal the end of the Trump administration. Oversight to even more lax state oversight. Yeah. 
you're a tribal elder, you're an activist, you talk about these lawsuits, uh, Environmental Protection Agency, the state, federal government. How much of your time is spent on, like you said, to, to begin our conversation, this paperwork and lawsuits and the battle that is is fought with the pen and email in the courtroom now? I don't sleep much. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I want to have a life of my own that, you know, and, and I will shut off my phone or ignore social media for a while just to have, you know, time to myself. And, you know, I serve on the tribe's um, Everglades Advisory Committee and I consult for the tribe on environment. So that's a lot of document reading and mm. listening, in, listening in on science calls or if the tribe needs me to attend a meeting offsite on their behalf, I do that. So the majority, 80% of my time is dedicated to uh, to the I, I'm gonna say to the tribe because fighting for the environment is fighting for the existence yeah. you know of my people mm-hmm. so about eighty percent of my time and the other twenty percent you know I have a business so somewhere in there I have to try to keep mm-hmm. keep up with the business thankfully you know because we're in a drought I operate Buffalo Tiger Airboat so you need water to operate an airboat so since we've been in a drought and haven't had water. We've been closed for about two months now, so I'm treating that as my vacation. Wow. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. And we haven't even talked about your, your prayer walks that you've gone on. Can we? Yeah. You know, as a, my late uncle, Bobby C. Billy, was trying to stop a project that was being proposed to be built along the Tamiami Trail. It was a, the River of Grass Greenway. It was going to be this greenway. You know, it was going to be a bicycle path. And you're like, and he wanted to stop it mm-hmm. because of the greater, because base, essentially they were going to build, it was, you know, when you think of a path, you think of something that isn't harmful to the envir- environment and it's yeah. a good thing. But this particular path was actually going to be built as like a road. And everyone agrees that the Tamiami Trail is a dam across the Everglades. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're spending a lot of money to the undo that, especially on the eastern side with these bridges that they put in. So here you have a group of people that would that wanted to put this path in that was going to create another dam across the Everglades. And also it was going to impact some important uh, sites to the Miccosukee and Seminole people. So in order to bring attention to it, he wanted to do a walk and he came to me and said he needed help. So we threw out this idea. We're going to do a walk. And I said, even if nobody shows up, I'll walk and you lead and will bring some kind of attention. So we created you know, a, a Facebook page for it. And lo and behold, the amount of people, we were, you know, surprised about the amount of people that showed up. And so that's how, you know, I got into the prayer walks because we were praying for the land and praying for, you know, these individuals that wanted this path to change their minds and their view of what they were doing. And my uncle has a history, had a history of doing prayer walks because he actually walked from South Florida all the way to Tallahassee, I believe wow. in the 80s, to protect the Miami Circle. So oh, yeah. even though mm-hmm. he's not here anymore, uh, he passed on from uh, from renal failure a couple of years ago. I continue the the prayer walks as a way to, to bring people together for a common goal. And also I use it as a way, I don't protest, I educate. Because when you can actually connect the people to the environment, and when they're walk, because I've walked the Everglades uh, across the Tamiami Trail three times, and I've walked Loop Road twice. I've walked Lake Okeechobee twice. When you can t- connect people and have those conversations, they get a deeper understanding 
of the importance to really think about how we're treating the environment. And over time, the people that have walked with me, they've actually, some of them made, you know, 180 degree change in their life. So that's why I do the prayer walks to try to strengthen those bonds. Cause we have too much, um, sometimes animosity towards each other's when it comes to the environment and a lot of anger can be thrown all over the place at different, you know, stakeholder groups. And in my culture, we're about being together on an issue and everyone has their part. So to me, the prayer walks are important. And also I do global prayers in these prayer walks. So when we're doing a prayer walk, we have people all around the world praying with us and they'll post in and sign up to do the prayers. You're looking at the Amazon, you're looking at Paris, France, New Zealand, Japan, the, you know, the Netherlands, all over the world, we're connecting people through prayer to help what's going on here in Florida. And that's, to me, that's very powerful. And you had your largest crowd yet with your last one, didn't you? The one where you were protesting the EPA's decision to hand over the wetlands permitting? Yes, that was a very large group. What is that days. Facebook page for people who want to follow along, myself included? Yeah, whenever uh, we do, you know, uh, we have the Walk for Mother Earth uh, Facebook page. And when we do the the prayer walks, because I would create it under my own Facebook. So whenever I do a prayer walk, it's for anyone. Because I always invite people to follow us, to pray with us from afar, or even if it's walking out their front door to the sidewalk. And just to post it up in, in solidarity. And I did a recent one um, where we went on Facebook and TikTok where I had I asked everyone to hold up a sign to tell me how many miles away they were from the Everglades. And that went around the world, too. I think mm-hmm. I, we got up to what about a million views and people posting up. I had a sign that said, I am the Everglades. You know, obviously I live in the Everglades, so mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have any miles to travel to get there. Things like that brings attention. And through social media, we I've asked people to write EPA, to write congressional leadership in opposition and to reconsider the EPA decision. And I understand there's there may be some close review of how that process occurred. There were a lot of questions about how it went down, that's for sure. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I know. Yeah. You know, and obviously, you know, is it Earth Justice is suing on some other uh, individual's behalf? But I do I I do believe to the congressional route, there's being some review as that process. A lot of things were circumvented. Walk for Mother Earth is a Facebook group you can join, as I just did here on my iPhone and uh, Betty Osceola on Facebook uh, as well. You can find her there. Uh, Now, I I had I just I'm just curious about your business. Uh, tell me about running a running a, an airboat in the Everglades. When people ask, what do I do for a living? I'm like, I, I'm an airboat captain. They they kind of pause and look at me for a minute. But, <laughs> 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 but you know, my father built airboats and, you know, I'm half Mikasuki and I'm, I'm half redneck and I'm proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I know the redneck jokes and, you know, I'm like cowboys and Indians had to fight at my home any, all the time. Oh my. <laughs> but, but that being said, I grew up around airboats and my father built them and I was always a tomboy, still I am. So when he went out fishing or hunting, I always tagged along with him and he taught me how to drive airboats because even uh, swamp buggies, because he always said, you know, when we're out in the swamp, if anything ever happened to him, I have to drive him out. 
Mm-hmm. So we made sure I knew how to drive the airboat and the swamp buggy just in case there was that emergency that I needed to drive us back into dock. So the airboat company that we run, Buffalo Tiger Airboat Tours, obviously that belonged to William Buffalo Tiger, the, the former chairman of the Miccosukee tribe. After he left chairmanship, he started the airboat business to continue to educate about the environment. And he always said, People only know about Native Americans as to what they either read or see on on television. So Mm -hmm. they have this idea of who we are, which isn't accurate. So he used the airboat business to educate and also to hope people would fall in love with the Everglades. And when he was older, you know, we approached him about because he was my husband's uncle. And so we approached him about maybe acquiring the business because I knew he was looking for someone to take over. And he was older in age and his health was more frail. So in the condition that he placed on us was to continue what he started, which was to educate about the Everglades and about the Miccosukee people as a way to to protect the Everglades. And that was simple because that's what uh, we believed in as well. Over time, we acquired the business from him. And after we uh, took over the business, he, he passed on in life a couple of years later. But we use the airboat to take out school kids, to take out, uh, we even get um, universities that travel all the way down into the Everglades for us to take them out and to show the the areas. Because where the tribe uh, allows us to run our airboats, only tribal members can take their boats out Mm. there. So the only way they're going to get into some of these areas is if they go with a tribal member. It's always changing the environment through the the company. I've had opportunity to take out um, PBS. CNN to film and I'm going to take out the weather channel on Sunday about the environment. It's opened up an avenue to get the message out there even to more people. All right. As a, as a swamp boat, airboat operator, swamp buggy driver walking across the Everglades, going back into big Cypress, where do you stand on the legend of the skunk ape? I've seen him. So I believe. Oh boy. Oh, wow. (laughs) What was that encounter? I thought like? he only lived in Tallahassee. <laughs> <laughs> no, I believe in the uh, the skunk ape, and you know, there's other members of my family and tribal members that have seen sightings. Uh, my sighting was down on Loop Road, which is a very wooded area, and you know, I had was maybe over 15 years ago now, where my husband and I, because uh, in my marriage with my husband, we were chicky builders. That's what he did for a living before we got married. And when we got married, we continued to do that. And we were harvesting cypress wood off of Loop Road. And I just happened to come up onto the road with a cypress tree to load it up onto the truck. And I stopped and looked down the road and I saw this this thing. This It wasn't a person, this creature come out, you know, from the east side of the road. And what I was looking, it was very tall, very hairy, and it stopped and looked at me and I looked at it and I was in my mind, I was like, am I seeing what I'm seeing? Am I hallucinating? Or is it this a figment of my imagination? All those thoughts were running through my head. And I had always heard about, you know, the, the skunk ape. And so I stood there, didn't move. And it stood there looking at me and it finally turned and went off to the West side on its way. And then, you know, I went back in to the swamp where my husband was. And I told him what I saw. He goes, no, you probably saw a fisherman, blah, blah, blah. Don't worry about it. He just said, stay next to me. So the rest of the day, you know, I was always next to him (laughs) doing whatever. But as we were leaving, I said, see, there's no car. There's no tracks. There's no, 
there's no evidence that it was a human being here. I know what I saw. And he just looked at me. Mm. <laughs> but later on, he said, I didn't want to get scared or whatever, which is, I, said, I wasn't scared. I was just looking at like, wow, you know, I've always heard about them. Now I saw one. And I don't ever want to see another one again, by the way. Have you seen any pythons out there? Where we're at, there's a lot of water. Um, I've seen <laughs> a python uh, a few times, but I saw, uh, you know, a dead python, dead alligator. The majority of the pythons I do see is is on the Tamiami Trail. It's right along the roadway because obviously they're looking for food. And so that wherever there's high ground, there's possibility of, you know, fur-bearing animals for them to eat. That's where you're going to find the python. But out in 3A, where I run the airboats, we I rarely see a python. Let's hope it stays that way. One more from me. Language is so important to any native culture, any culture, native, non-native. How many speakers of the native Miccosukee language are left and are, are you able to, to speak it at all? Yeah, I'm fluent in my language. Oh, wow. My, my mother was very adamant that we speak the language, but I would say... Unfortunately, I would say less than half are fluent speakers. We have a lot of broken Miccosukee where they've combined the English and the Miccosukee. And for a while there at the beginning of COVID, um, because, you know, the tribe had shut down their operations and school was virtual because I volunteer in the school with the, uh-huh. for the kids. We were doing virtual language classes for Miccosukees and Seminoles. It is important. But now I notice which I, and I'm happy to see that some of the younger people are making that effort in their early 20s, you know, late teens are, yeah. are making that effort that they want to learn their language. That's great. That's great. How do you say welcome to Florida in Miccosukee? <laughs> well, we don't have a word for welcome. So it would be like, oh. yeah, it's, I basically said that to see y'all here in Florida is good. Wow. One more time so we can make sure we got that. Wow. Excellent. I have tried a handful of times to learn French with absolute failure on every <laughs> endeavor. I would love to be able to pick up any sort of native language. I think it's so beautiful and so incredibly important. But my gosh, uh, the I can't even begin to imagine how difficult... Uh, it would be for me personally, and, and I uh, applaud you for trying to continue that with the Miccosukee because that is, uh, as you're well aware, an essential piece of this uh, puzzle of keeping uh, the culture consistent and, and contemporary and, and vibrant. Yeah, that's a part of our identity. Most mm-hmm. common you'll hear um, is Chihantamo as a greeting. We don't have a word for hello. We say, how are you? When we greet each other, we say, how are you? Chihantamo. Yeah. I tend to tell people, how's it going? So I guess it's sort of like that. (laughs) This week's episode of Welcome to Florida, again, brought to you by Eco Pathways, eco pathways.com, a Florida company that has engineered a state of the art material for your beach walkover, your dune walkover, anything that's going to be exposed to the harsh UV and wind and salt air and water here in Florida. If it's a boardwalk at a golf course, if you have a home that uh, has a pier or a dock out into the water, Eco Pathways has a product that you will want to know about. Lightweight, modular, easy to install, 
holds up to the elements far better than wood. It's got like a 50-year guarantee on it. That wood dock of yours is going to be peeling and cracking and losing its color and have those nails popping up shortly after installation. But Eco Pathways, eco-pathways.com has a superior product Better than wood, better than pressure-treated lumber because it doesn't have all the chemicals that pressure-treated lumber has. Check it out at eco-pathways.com. I should have asked this earlier, and I'm, I'm kind of circling back. You mentioned in passing that you cook over an open fire. How, did, how does that work, and what do you cook? Well, as a child growing up, the cheeky hut structures, we call it a cook cheeky, were at the top. They kind of, it kind of, it's not a chimney, but there'll be openings at the top of the cheeky store when you have a fire underneath, the smoke can rise and go out. I was taught how to chop firewood, how to build a fire. Right now, we use metal grates to be able to put the pots and pans on. Basically, it's like cooking over a stove, but you're cooking over a fire mm-hmm. instead. And you learn how to you know, obviously a high heat is high temperature and off to the side over the coals is low. Mm -hmm. You slow cook it. Growing up, I learned how to clean a turtle. I can clean all kinds of turtle, Mm. make soups, roast them, roast sometimes like the sliders, you roast them in the shell, soft shell turtles. I can clean, you know, blindfolded. I learned how to clean a deer. I can skin a deer. I can skin a hog. I can butcher a cow and cook those over a fire. If I have to, you know, cook a pig over a fire, it takes all days just slow cooking it. I, I can make jerky. I can roast corn. Uh, sometimes uh, we have a drink that is kind of like a soupy cornmeal type of drink. And we'll take corn and shuck the corn and slow roast the kernels over a fire. And then we'll take and gr- uh, grind it. We have a, it's kind of like a, we call it a corn pounder. It's a, I don't know if you've seen photographs of it. They'll take oak and burn out uh, a hole in it so that you can put the the corn in there. And they have a long pole that we use to actually pound the corn to smash it up. And then we we sift out. Uh, Some people use sand. I learned how to roast corn and sand. So we sift out the sand and everything to get just what we need. It's like making your own cornmeal. And we use that in breads and making uh, soups and different things. So I I do that as well. Wow. I can fry chicken over a fire too. That's great. Yeah, it's on my Facebook. Much. You'll see some of the yeah. some of the stuff that I I've cooked. Sometimes I'll post up when I'm cooking and put it on my Facebook. Oh, okay. I'll, Betty I'll Osceola is a tribal elder with the Mikasuki. She's an environmental activist. You can find her on Facebook. Check out the Walk for Mother Earth on Facebook, Buffalo Tiger airboat tours in the Everglades. If you're down that way, I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Uh, Continued blessings as you fight for what is rightfully yours as a native uh, of Florida and for your tribe. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. It's been so educational. Thank you. A lot to think about there with Betty Osceola and Native cultures and the plight of Native people in this country and how they've been done wrong every day since white people landed here has always been an interest of mine. Boy, that's a hard life. And I don't mean a hard life living in a chicky hut and making your own food. I mean, fighting the state and federal government every okay. single day of your life for what is rightfully yours. Oof. But they, they've had they've had some big successes. That way I didn't get into it with, with Betty, but 20 years ago, I guess there was a story I wrote about how uh, the Miccosukee tribe got into a fight with Everglades National Park because they wanted some additional land mm-hmm. for adding more 
residences in the reservation yeah. and the park was fighting them and actually wanted to put everything behind fences so that it wouldn't it, the so the tourists wouldn't be offended at seeing these chicky huts which is just kind of insulting yeah. and and they actually they actually got the ear of a congressman Elsie Hastings mm-hmm. who you know got pushed a law through giving them more land so for once the native americans actually won land back from the united states government that's great. That's a one great story among countless sad ones. I will yeah. shamelessly plug myself here. If you go to my Twitter page at Chad Scott, two D's and Chad, two T's and Scott, I do my best to update uh, my timeline with Native American stories, activism from all over the country. And there are any number of resources. And, and my Twitter page is one if you are interested in learning more about Native American contemporary Native American issues and how contemporary Native American people are trying to make their way in uh, the country. You can do that there. Of course, always follow Craig at Craig Times. She also mentioned something that I think about periodically, and that is if I could, if I could, if I had a time machine, Craig, uh, Mm -hmm. where I would go back to is pre-contact with Europeans on the North American continent and I would go back to the Great Plains and see the <laughs> herds of buffalo in the hundreds yeah. of thousands. And I would go back to the Everglades to see the birds in the winter oh, before yeah. European. I cannot. Uh, it, there's so many now in my purview of thing. But right. It's a but fraction it, you know, of what it was. Oh, right. to, see, see, to see what that was like 400 years ago I is unimaginable. You know, I love reading these pioneer accounts of things in right. in Florida from from before, before World War II and so forth. And I was reading one uh, account where it, a guy was talking about driving across the Everglades in the early 40s, and he had to stop because it looked like a whole river was crossing the road all at once. And when he flashed his high beams on, he realized it wasn't water, or it was just partly water, but it was eels. Mm. It was a mass of eels crossing the Tamiami Trail from one part of the Everglades yeah. to the other. Yeah which is not something you see anymore. Well, in our bonus episode about Indian River County, we talked about the Pelican National Wildlife Refuge, which was started in response to the plume hunters of the early 20th century. I hope down the road we get a chance to talk about plume hunting and the collapse of the bird colonies in South Florida for the Mm -hmm. women's hats and that sort of thing. Uh, Betty mentioned a, a number of topics that you can reference in greater detail in the archive. Of course, a recent episode on cabbage palm that ties into the chicky huts, uh, pythons, panthers, the Everglades, Jetport, the Everglades and Big Sugar. All of those episodes will connect to uh, what you heard today. And how about the skunk ape sighting? I just threw that out there for levity. And that that connects into a previous episode, too. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) It's all connected, man. It's all it's all tied together. It's all a vast conspiracy here in Florida.